Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Well, good morning, beloved. Good morning. Um, if you're visiting with us, we're blessed to have you here. Uh, we teach the Bible expositionally, which means we proclaim God's truth verse by verse. Uh, we spent the last six months in the uh, latter chapters of Genesis, that is chapters 37 to 50, looking at the life of Joseph. And we, the elders, concluded that we would just continue on in Exodus. I don't know how long we'll be in Exodus. We were six months just in third chapters 37 to 50 of Genesis, so I don't know. You can do the math. <laughs> but here we are in Exodus, so we're going to look at the first 12 verses while at the same time um, doing somewhat of an overview um, this morning. Um, obviously, Exodus is the the second of five books that open the Bible, um, otherwise known as the five books of Moses, also known as the Pentateuch. Um, Jews refer to these five books as the Torah. Moses is its author, and we see his authorship uh, witnessed in a number of places where the Lord instructs him to actually write these things down. We see that in Exodus 17, verse 14, Exodus 24, 4, Exodus 34, 27. Um, and throughout Exodus, uh, we're told of the most dramatic occurrences in the life of Moses. Yet Exodus is much more, beloved, than a, a biography of Moses, the shepherd of God's people. The first ver few verses right here in front of you um, cover several hundred years, 430 to be exact. Chapter 2 is condensed to cover 80 years of Moses' life, and then from chapter 3 through 40, we have a, a small portion of the wilderness wanderings, and of course, uh, that's expanded in detail um, in the book of Numbers. Uh, but Exodus divides into three basic parts. 
for those of you who take notes and are interested in this. Part 1 is chapters 1 through 18. It is the story of the exodus from Egyptian bondage. Part 2, which make up chapters 19 to 24, deals with the consecration of Israel as God sets forth his commands through his servant Moses. And then part 3, of course, chapters 25 to 40, focuses on worship. The worship of Almighty God through his people. And then, of course, the building of the tabernacle. Now, Moses begins Exodus where Genesis left off, and that is with Israel in Egypt. And he proceeds not only to tell the story of Israel's divine deliverance from the oppression of slavery, but he reveals uh, to all believers of all time what it means to be redeemed by God. You, beloved, are a redeemed people. A purchased possession of Almighty God, our sovereign Savior. We learn what it means to live with God and how we are to worship God as we look into the book of Exodus. So three grand subjects that dominate the book of Exodus is a redeemed people by God who live with God and worship God. Three grand themes right there. And that then lays out the foundational theology in which God reveals himself to his people by way of his name. He is I am. Yahweh. We see his attributes. We see his work of redemption. We see his law. And once again, how we as his people are to worship Now, the overarching message of Exodus is this. Very simply, God delivers his people to himself for himself. Your salvation is a means to his end. And the end is what, beloved? The glory of God. Amen? The glory of Almighty God. Now, notice, if you will, the very first words here. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. Now, that word, these, uh, translated in the ESV, that's not actually the first word. In fact, uh, the first word in the original is a conjunction, the word and. The word and. Now, uh, my children grew up watching uh, Schoolhouse Rock. Did you watch Schoolhouse Rock? Grammar Rock, you get that? It was on Cartoon Saturday, and the kids would just would come on in between the cartoons. And uh, there was a little ditty in that show. It was Conjunction Junction, what's your function, right? Remember that? And the little trains coming into the yard, and they're connecting up. It says, the function of a conjunction is to hook, hook up words, phrases, or clauses. You know, with the word and, but, and or. So you're taught in English class not to start sentences, let alone a book, with a conjunction, the conjunction and. But the conjunction and here shows us that Exodus is a continuation of a preceding narrative by way of a number of connections or hookups, if you will. Are you with me this morning? 
We're going to look at those connections this morning. These number of hookups with the book of Exodus. So here we see that this conjunction connects Exodus with the matters of Genesis by way of a genealogy. Verses 1 through 5. And we ask, why another list of names? How many names have we looked at when we were just in Genesis? Quite simply, beloved, because God's people matter to him. You get that? You're his people. You matter to him. The work he began in you, he will complete that work. You didn't just wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to come to Christ. Amen? He awakened you to your need, and then provided you the faith to believe in the first place. He drew you to him. You're not brilliant enough, nor am I, to understand my need for him. So his people matter. So notice verse 1, And the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Notice in verse 1, two names referring to the same person, okay, which reminds us back in Genesis that God broke Jacob. Remember the supplanter, the deceiver, and declared that he would be called by his covenant name, Israel. Connecting the story of Exodus with the story of the patriarchs in Genesis, that's the first connection. We've spent six months in that. That's the first connection. Of the conjunction and. The second connection is the mention of Joseph's death. Right there, verse 6, which has taken place, uh, which takes place in the very last verses of Genesis 50. Just look over to the other page there. Then Joseph, verse 25, made his sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So how did Joseph get there? How did Jacob get there? Now, if you've been with us, you know the details to the story. If you haven't, um, just look at Psalm 105, verse 16. When he, God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them. Who sent him ahead? God. Joseph, who was sold as a slave, according to the sovereign, definite plan of God, worked out by way of his providence through the evil of his brothers. Verse 23, then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. What does that mean? Well, quite simply, uh, part of Egypt um, is where some of Ham's descendants eventually settled. So it's Egypt. Okay, now... Another connection of the conjunction and is that this narrative, this truth fulfilled what God told to Abraham way back in Genesis 15. You remember that? Verse 13, the Lord said to Abram, now 
for, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So in Exodus, we see references to the covenant God made with Abraham long ago, hundreds of years earlier. We read in Exodus 2, verse 22, notice, God heard their groaning, 400 years of groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God promised Abraham that from him, he was going to raise up a mighty nation of people. So the and connects us to that promise. You're going to see a lot of connections this morning, okay? You've got to hang in there. Now, ultimately, it would be innumerable. It would be a source of blessing for all nations through the seed, through the line of Abraham. So God promises a land also as an inheritance. Notice Exodus 6, verse 4. I also establish my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. The land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So as Exodus opens, they're living in servitude to Egypt. They are a pressed and oppressed people at this point. Now, was Israel the only nation enslaved to another nation at this time? No. Many nations have been enslaved to other nations. But God hears their groaning. Why? Because of his covenantal faithfulness. It's never about the people. It's always about the God of the people. Amen? It's about his faithfulness. Now, another connection to Exodus is within the creation ordinance given at the beginning of the book of Genesis. Here's another connecting point, that conjunction and. Verse 7, notice, But the people of Israel were fruitful, and they multiplied. They increased greatly. They, They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. So, as it is with the second book of the Pentateuch here in Exodus, it was with the first. Remember back in Genesis, what did God say? God blessed Adam and Eve, and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Is God's will being done? Oh, yeah. Even as they're under heavy oppression. So this is a message from God to a people who've entered at this point in redemptive history a time of darkness. You ever dwell in a time of darkness? I see some eyebrows raise up. (laughs) That was funny. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, the interesting thing about Exodus 1 is that God doesn't directly speak in the first chapter. He's silent. All the talking is done by Pharaoh. Exodus 1 is quiet, if you will, as far as God's speaking goes, but he in no way is any less active or effective. That's never the case. He's the one who's bringing his promises to pass. He is the one bringing about the truth and the fulfillment of his word. Again, according to divine providence. 
that we see being worked out here. So again, beloved, this is a principle of truth for us here this morning. We must remember as God's people this reality. Because perhaps there's circumstances in your life today where you're not particularly seeing directly or vividly the faithfulness of God in your life. Could this be the case? Has this ever been the case with you? If it hasn't, it will be. It will be. Because many times God matures us, and as he does, he's not ringing the bells of his faithfulness and presence in our lives. It's quiet. It's dark. But he wants you to have the joy of discovery, discovering the truth of his working in and through your life according to his timing. His timing. Is his timing ever our timing? In the end it is. In the end it is. But not when you're in the midst of this. So just because it's quiet, maybe even silent, without any fanfare, that doesn't remove him from the scene or circumstances of your life. Since everyone wants application almost to every point of narratives like that, there's one for you. We're going to talk a little bit more about application later. Especially in the day and age in which we live. Everyone's on application, concrete application. Well, there's one point of application that we always need to adhere to, and I'll get to that in a little while, so that means you're going to have to stay awake this morning. So here, Exodus opens with this conjunction and telling an oppressed people, you're not randomly here. You haven't been abandoned by me, nor have you been forsaken to this land, land of Egypt, or in Goshen, remember? Your story, Israel, God says, is part of my story. I'm the creator, and I've always been the creator from the beginning. I have given my people a mission to be fruitful, to multiply, and fill the earth. And my will will be done. Amen? Even under the screws of oppression. So we see here, beloved, a deliberate connection made in Exodus 1 back to Genesis 1. By way of that conjunction and. So in this then, the incubator of Egypt, God was at work over these 400 years where in verse 7 we, we hear this echo of Genesis 1, be fruitful, multiply. So here we have a growing, swarming, infiltrating people that have now become uh, an intimidation factor for the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh. So that leads us to see here the secret of God's faithfulness in verses 8 through 12. There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities in Python and Ramses. And the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. That's amazing, isn't it? So there's been a change of regime, 
regime. There's, there's new policy over Egypt. There's a new dynasty since the days of Joseph. One who didn't remember Joseph. One who didn't remember the blessing of God by way of Joseph. How quickly we forget. So Israel no longer had the privilege or protection they had when Joseph served as second in command. A new man is in power. New regime, new dynasty, new time. So again, as I said earlier, it's Pharaoh who does all the talking. We see it in verses 8 and 9. We see it in verse 15. We see it in verse 22. He's starting to freak out a little bit. To use the vernacular, right? So this Pharaoh basically reasoned We have to be sharp in the matter, so let's make these people slaves and force them to hard labor because if enemies come against them, they may join with them. Now, was this any surprise to God, beloved? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, he divinely orchestrated the whole thing. Did you know that? Okay, look at this just in case you don't, and even if you do. Psalm 106, again, verse 24. And the Lord made his people very fruitful. Context X this, this time. And made them stronger than their foes. Notice verse 25. He turned their hearts to hate his people. <gasps> what? Who's sovereign? Thank you. God is sovereign. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. So the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and affliction served as a kind of fertilizer to multiply the people. God's people in this place at this time. Bringing forth life in the land. So they're isolated, no longer under the favor of Pharaoh of old, as their predecessors were. And sometimes, beloved, in this world, you will feel isolated as the people of God. Even in your own family. Hopefully not within your church family. But sometimes you may. Or you'll feel all alone in the midst of your culture, all alone in your work environment, all alone in school, all alone in your neighborhood. You feel isolated. But your story, like Israel's story, also starts with a conjunction. Amen? And Jeff. And Phil. And Kathy. And Mark. Your story as God's people begins with and. And my people. Connecting you to all of God's people from throughout all of time. One big redeemed family. Amen? And then being connected to God's people, to his purpose, to his plan, makes us all connected to Christ. The son of the living God. The savior. So since we're in fact connected to what has taken place here in Exodus and everything that happened throughout redemptive history, it also becomes evident that we indeed are one people. Always have been and always will be. And that connects us to something else that all of God's people from throughout all of time experience 
throughout the epics of time. And you know what that is? Another connecting point? Conflict. Conflict. Now, we will see next, well, in the next couple weeks, that when as God's people choose to obey him here, notice in verse 17, these midwives, they feared God and they refused to do what Pharaoh commanded them to do. And then they find themselves in a painful, hard spot. Have you ever found yourself in a painful, hard spot because you chose to obey God? You've taken his word. You don't have some liberal slant that you read into it. And you say and you conclude, it's clear. And as a result of a desire to obey, there is no prosperity immediately or success immediately, but only seeming hardship immediately. (laughs) And if, you, if that's you, you're, you're not the first and you won't be the last of God's people to, to end up here with a desire and choosing to obey God. Due to the fact, beloved, that there are forces of opposition arrayed against us, the enemies of God who oppose God, all the while attempt to oppose us, the children of God. This is reality. This is the conflict. So the reason for this opposition, that word and, the conjunction and, takes us back to another connecting point, way back in Genesis 3. Actually, let's go back to Genesis 1.31, which reads, God saw everything that he made, everything that he made, and behold, it was what? Very good. Good. If God says everything is good, Everything is good. Amen? No conflict, no disunity until the disaster of Genesis 3. By the way of the subtlety of Satan. And then, as Adam and Eve stand in the ash heap of their own sin, God then says to Satan, chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity. Okay, stay with me. Enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. It's familiar territory, amen? You see, beloved, that verse frames the rest of the Bible. That verse frames not only the rest of the Bible, but the rest of human history. All of human history. And to better understand history, let alone to better understand Scripture, you must understand God's words in Genesis 3, verse 15. If you don't, you won't understand the Bible. You won't understand the cross as clearly without an understanding of this. This is the proto-gospel. Exodus, Genesis, rather, 3.15, proto-gospel, the beginning of the good news, that God is going to save sinners, all of whom are in Adam. Now, the first hint of what was going to come is heard in, in God's judgment, pronounced upon Satan back in verse 14. 
Genesis 3.14, because you have done this. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. That, friends, is figurative language. It has more to do than with a snake on his belly. It's figurative language describing conquest, submission, and humiliation. He's going to be crushed. You read this kind of language um, in Psalm 72, Isaiah 49, and Micah 7.17. Figurative language. So Satan's head would be crushed under the heel of Adam and Eve's offspring. And then when we get to the New Testament, Paul saw this as an already inaugurated feat by Christ's victory on the cross. As a matter of fact, remember when he wrote, he's concluding his letter to the church in Rome, and he said, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So it's a crushing that's still in progress. That's a major connecting point, this conjunction and of Exodus. Major connecting point to Genesis 3.15. He is, Satan, that is, a defeated foe. He is on death row awaiting his ultimate end where he and all his minions and all those who are not in Christ, which the Bible says are followers of Satan, will be cast into the lake of fire. People who are in hell now, they're on death row. They're in hell where death and hell eventually, when Christ comes back, will be cast into the lake of fire. So until then, the agenda of history is conflict between God's people and the devil's people. And let me assure you here this morning, my friends, there are only two kingdoms in the world, and everybody, including all within this room, are in one of those two camps. There ain't no other, to use a double-double negative. There's no other. You're in one or the other. And those kingdoms, my friend, are diametrically opposed. The kingdom of God. You're either either children of the Most High or you're sons and daughters of your father, the devil, as Jesus said, one or the other. So if you're here this morning, side note, perhaps you're a garden variety pagan. You've been invited to church. We're blessed you're here. I'm serious. Maybe you're a New Age spiritualist. Maybe you refer to yourself as an agnostic. I wouldn't use that term if I were you. It means ignoramus. So call yourself an ignoramus if you're an agnostic. You are of your father, the devil. Period. And the hope is that the spirit of God has led you here to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that he'll transition you from one kingdom to the other. Amen? That's the hope. That's why we love unbelievers to come. Feel free, beloved, to invite your unbelieving friends or your ignoramus friends. Amen? Now, here's Pharaoh, back to the account. Although Pharaoh wasn't consciously aware that he was carrying out the designs of his father, the devil, it was the forces of evil who worked to manipulate his hand. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, amen? 
spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. So Pharaoh did exactly as he willed to do. Right? And all the while, the Pharaoh was carrying out the Lord's agenda, the Lord's word given to Abraham long ago, saying that his people would be afflicted 400 years. So there you have the sovereign designer, God himself, working behind and using Satan actually as a pawn for his own glory. And then Pharaoh there is being manipulated, but doing exactly as he determined and wanted and desired to do. Mysterious, isn't it? So the people of God are always in conflict with the course of this world. Now, when we get to the book of Revelation, it's described as a conflict between the dragon and the woman. Remember that? In, 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 in Revelation 12, why don't you turn there as a matter of fact. In Revelation 12, beloved, we're taken behind the curtain of earthly conflict. Notice this. Now, I'm not going to have time this morning, beloved, to um, define um, all of the symbolism that's used here in this chapter. But if you want um, detailed information, you go to our website and you can go when we did Revelation 12, and it's all there for you. But notice, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Does that remind you of somebody's dream? Remember Joseph's dream? The sun, the moon, and 11 stars will bow down before you. So we see here 12 sons, 12 tribes. We, we see faithful Israel. We see the true Israel of God being defined here. All-inclusive, true Israel of God who, who had a messianic hope. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So what's in view here are all Old Testament saints, um, saints They're collectively in view, including Mary, the mother of Jesus. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on its head seven diadems. His his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Uh, That is a depiction of uh, Daniel 8. And again, you can go to the website. I don't have time to get into that. Um, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Christ. She gave birth to a male child, one who, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So there in one verse you have the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And that verbiage takes us back to uh, 167 to 164 B.C. Antiochus Epiphanes where the three and a half days of the 1,260 days became a symbol of persecution. That is a limited time of persecution. Symbolic. Okay? Symbolic. Apocalyptic language is symbolic. So it's during this time that God nourishes people. Yes, they're under pressure, but at the same time, He provides. Because whatever happens here, it doesn't really matter because they're secured 
forever during the 1,260 days. Now there arose in heaven Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. So who initiates the battle? Michael and the angels, right? It's the dragon who fights back. He was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. Not necessarily a geographic relocation of Satan and his minions, but again, this is apocalyptic language, which describes and defines the utter defeat of Satan through the finished work of Jesus Christ. He used to have access to accuse the brethren, but now the accusations are limited to this realm in your own conscience. That's why you have to remember the scriptures. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus stands as the mediator. He says, it's done. I am their righteousness. Amen? So there's no condemnation. Anyway, we need to move on. Notice. Verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman. These are the continuing people of God. To sweep her away with a flood. That's the flood of deceit. And when deceit does not fool the people of God, he persecutes the people of God. Did you get that? The earth came to help the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Notice this. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her what? Offspring. Who does that include? You. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one true covenant family of God. Old covenant, new covenant, one people of God. They've always experienced the conflict. The conjunction and. Connects us to this reality. And those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sea, on the sand of the sea. That, friends, is a pictorial for God's people to know that until the end, the dragon is after God's people. First line of attack, the rivers of deceit. He wants to deceive you with false doctrine. He wants to deceive you to listen to the lies of the dragon, of the enemy. And ultimately, that pictures Christ, who from his earliest years was sought after to be destroyed by the dragon. Remember King Herod? Who sought to destroy the king of kings and the slaughter of the innocents? Do you remember that in Bethlehem? Driving Joseph and Mary with baby Jesus to where? Egypt. To Egypt for a time as a temporal dwelling place for the Son of God. Fulfilling what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Matthew 2.15. My son, that friends is the true Israel of God. The flawless, sinless Israelite, Jesus Christ. True Israel. So who of us, as believers, hasn't felt and experienced the oppression and bitterness of this conflict? Anybody. If anyone has never felt the conflict, man, I have to wonder if you're in Christ. 
There's the fight and struggle against false doctrine. Continually, we're barraged with this. Family members enslaved to false religion. We all have loved ones who don't believe. Some of us battle with true physical persecution. Those, not in this part of the world, but those of us in the family of God. Others struggle with feelings of inadequacy, feelings of absolute, utter hopelessness. Talking about Christians here. That's a struggle. That's a conflict. Some of us battle with anxiety. Some of us battle with fears, depression, and other, others of us with always nagging sins. The same old sin. Can you relate? There's for those who battle with the pain of a brutal past. A dark past. And the memories just won't go away. So all of God's people suffer some form of conflict or struggle that's connected to all the other people of God from throughout all of time. See the connections? Now, specific opposition may certainly change. There's seasons for things, are there not? There's certain seasons for certain kinds of, of conflict, certain intensities in form, they kind of ebb and flow. That is to say, the battlefields will differ and and they will change, but the battle still remains the same. The battle remains the same. The source of the battle is the same. So opposition, Jesus said, is inevitable for the people of God. Amen? John 16, 33. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, said Jesus, I have overcome the world. Is that a promise you like to claim? Come on, did you hear me? We don't like to claim that promise. But it's no less true. Amen? 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery tribal when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This, friends, is what it is to live a rescued life in a fallen world. This conflict. This is reality. Or to use Augustine's language, this is the city of God that lives amid the city of man. It's God's kingdom, right? And we see the dawning of the age to come, but it is not yet fully consummated. It's being fulfilled through the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And until then, there's going to be conflict. Another contacting point of the conjunction and. So Exodus, beloved, teaches us that as we trust God, he's never caught off guard. He doesn't sit in heaven worried whether or not his kingdom will prevail or not. His nature assures it. He has won and he will win. So in other words, God is always working for his people. That's what we see throughout Exodus, regardless of circumstances. And he does it for his own glory. 
and the good of his people. So if we, in this life, fail to pay attention to circumstances, we'll be in a mess. We need to pay attention to circumstances, do we not? We need to discern our own children's lives, their own spiritual condition, where they are, because they're going to probably start out raising their fist at God like we did. Hopefully not. Only the foolish do. But we're all fools, are we not? So we need to be discerning. We need to pay attention to our circumstances that demand our attention or we'll soon be overcome by them. Sometimes they control our emotions. You know, I got to say, I took a couple weeks off. It was a miserable time. <laughs> I got this terrible flu. I, I had to postpone this trip. I'm not, please, no Osrin. I'm not trying to get sympathy, but I'm just, I'm going to point out the sin in my own life for you. And then I go to the bank, and a guy knocks over, backs into my motorcycle, right? You know, I'm an old biker guy, and I got a shiny bike. And this guy knocks it over and does all this damage. And then he appeared as though he was going to try to get out of paying for it. I was controlled by the circumstances. That's why it wasn't any good. I was controlled by the circumstances of my environment. And I knew all along the way that the Lord was sanctifying me in these things. And I still, like, was fighting against this thing. It was miserable. I made it miserable. Controlled emotionally by my circumstances. If that's not a vivid picture of this, I don't know what is. Amen? In, in minute comparison. But we have to remember that God's people are never left at the mercy of mere circumstance. Amen? God has a much bigger plan. And that's what we will see being worked out through the exodus. You know, some of us wonder, what's going to happen to our children? I have a grandson now. I wonder, what is going to happen to my grandson in this environment? <sighs> my goodness. Are there things to be concerned about? Are we supposed to fear in the midst of it? No. So that's why I have to be reminded of this, and I remind you of this. The guy paid for the damages he did, by the way. Yesterday morning. <laughs> it was challenging, but it worked out. Anyway. So as we work our way through Exodus, some of us are going to ask, what's the application for me? People have left here because he doesn't preach enough application. Oh, my goodness. Many believers in our day only understand the biblical text if it somehow translates into concrete, practical application for me. Where's the payoff? Let me give you a practical, applicable point of Exodus. You know what it is? Greater worship of our Lord. You want a point of application? Worship. That's what it is. Because we're reminded of God's mercy, of his wonder, of his greatness. And a worshipful heart renews motivation for a godly life and obedience. Start there. Let's get away from this. 
What's the three-point application for me? Let's get away from this. I don't hear that here. I used to hear it here. Don't hear it now. Praise God. Worship. Yet, for anyone who, you know, that may not be enough, let me give you one. 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. If greater, grander worship is not enough of application, for anyone here as we go through Exodus, here is a point of application you can turn to every week. 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters if some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. There's an application point for you if worship is not enough. Notice this. What happened in the book of Exodus was not written down for our instruction, but actually notice verse 6 and 11, happened for our instruction. Did you catch that? Now, as we work our way through, and as I get ready to close up here, as we witness the utter failures of Israel throughout the Exodus, may we see ourselves not as their critics, but as their equals. For but by the grace of, and mercy of God have we been delivered. Amen? So we don't sit as their critics. When we read the book of Exodus, we're not just studying ancient history. It's not merely history. We're reading a story, Paul said, that is for us. These events have direct application to us as Christians. And here's the reminder, beloved, that Paul is driving home. This is the reminder. This is a generation in Exodus that failed to inherit the promise. So, friends, it is a reminder for us who sit in church week in or week out or month in and month out. A reminder that mere verbal adherence to the Christian faith and participation in sacramental practices do not guarantee final inheritance. You can be as liturgic as you want and recite all kinds of truth and in the end, not enter in. It's only those who continue to trust in the divine promises of this, the promise maker, and who obey the gospel to the end. What does it mean to obey the gospel? 
means to believe it. That I have entrusted myself fully and completely to God through Jesus Christ according to the grace that he supplies. So if you go on believing in agnosticism after having proclaimed Christ and yet you still come to church and you still listen to this guy preach, you're not a believer. If you believe there's more than one ways to God, you're either very confused, more likely you're not a believer. Repent. Okay, finally. How then shall we interpret Exodus? We already know how to apply it. Now, how do we interpret it? Obviously, you want to see the immediate context of what it meant for the original hearers. Amen? And we will do that. But God has already interpreted Exodus and the entire Old Testament for us, has he not? Yes, he has. How? By raising Jesus Christ from the dead, which serves as the exclamation point of Israel's story. It's all Christ. Remember we said in the life of Joseph that Jesus is the hermeneutical interpretive key. He's the interpretive key to the Old Testament. Jesus said to the Pharisees, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What did Moses write? The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Jesus said, they're about me. They're all about me. In John 1.45, Philip, he spoke about Christ. Not only that he sees him from the first five books, but also he sees him in the prophets. John 1.45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. You see, friends, we can only see Christ by standing and looking back from the end of the story. Just as the apostles did. For example, we just, we just read in 1 Corinthians 10 about Paul making a connection to the church. And what we're to remember about the Exodus, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 makes a connection to the prophets. Notice what he says. 2 Corinthians 6, 2. In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Original context, Babylonian captivity for the Israelites with no direct reference in the Old Testament to God's Christ. Okay? That, however, does not prevent Paul from making the connection as he quotes Isaiah in the New Testament. Very important we get this. Now, is he contradicting Isaiah by applying it to Christ? No. He's building upon Isaiah's words. Just as he builds upon Moses' words. So the salvation Isaiah spoke about was a prelude to the fullness of God's salvation for his people. These are all shadows and types that point to the fulfillment of it all. The Lord Jesus Christ. So the now that Isaiah referred to is Israel's relief from Babylonian captivity. That was true. That was real. 
but it only foreshadowed the final now of the coming Christ. That now Paul speaks of is clarified. Now listen to the connection. 2 Corinthians, listen to this. For our sake, he made him, this is 2 Corinthians 5, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, working together with him. Then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So here's Paul, the great rabbi, the great apostle, who goes back to the Old Testament. He rereads Israel's story, and he says, in essence, aha! Now I get it. Now I know what God was ultimately doing and what God was ultimately saying through Isaiah, through the prophets, through Moses, in the Exodus, by way of the wilderness, and the conquest. He was speaking of Christ. Moses was a shepherd of God's people. And Moses is a type of our great shepherd, Moses gave the law. And our Lord Jesus is not only the law giver, he's the law keeper in our place. Law giver, law keeper. Now, Israel failed miserably in obeying God's law. We will see that as we work through this. But it's Jesus, the true Israel of God, who kept the entire. For Jesus, John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became what? Flesh. Which means this. Tabernacled among us. When we get to chapter 40, we'll read about the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. Who's the dwelling place of God now? The church. You are the dwelling place of God. We are the dwelling place of God. We'll read about the institution of the Lord's Passover, the slain lamb, the night before they depart. They're instructed by God to sprinkle blood of a lamb on the doorpost and upon the lentil, and God passed over them. He passed over, and they were rescued from the death blow of God's wrath on the firstborn of every household of Egypt. And God passed over them because they were covered by blood and we're covered by the blood of the lamb who takes away the sins of the world providing a much greater exodus a much greater passover a much greater temple it is our lord jesus christ who provides us his people access to the father by way of the one and only mediator the lord jesus christ for without whom we would be devoured by his holy indignation Woo! Woo! I'll be done in two minutes. You can only receive these benefits. You can only receive this life as you receive the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not by turning over a new leaf. In case you're here thinking about turning over a new leaf, forget about turning over a new leaf. 
You need to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and he'll make you a new leaf. Amen? You, 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 have, an in, you have it not in you. It's not in you to do this. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lamb of God alone, who was slain before the foundation of the earth, providing the ultimate exodus. So, beloved, at every turn of this exodus, may we see much more of Christ as he's magnified through the pages of the old, shining forth, having met the requirement of God's law in a human body, laying down his life. And one last thing. When Jesus stood on the Mount of Transfiguration, he stood there with Moses and Elijah. Do you remember that? Do you remember that? Peter, James, and John are just tripping out. And Peter wants to build three tabernacles. He doesn't know what to do. You wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't have known what to do. They were in fear. Luke 9.31 describes that scene. And it says this, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The word departure there is the same Greek word that gives the second book of the Bible its name, Exodus. They were talking about what he was going to accomplish at Jerusalem. They spoke of his exodus. Jesus provides his people with the great exodus. That is, from the bondage of sin and death. So just as the Old Testament exodus could not be accomplished without the blood of a slain lamb, the ultimate exodus can't be accomplished without the shed blood of this lamb. Jesus Christ, our sovereign Lord and Savior. Christ's blood provides freedom from sin, deliverance, reconciliation, adoption, and an internal inheritance. This is what we've received. This should increase our worship. That's the applicable point of the Exodus. Amen? So I'm here to tell you that Jesus alone has accomplished everything necessary for this eternal Exodus. If you're here this morning and you have some strange, quirky, weird, pagan belief, and I'm not mocking you, this is reality, It's not of God. It's of the devil. This is the truth. I don't care what culture says, what you hear on TV. He is the true sovereign Lord. And I pray and I trust and I hope that the Holy Spirit of God will open your eyes to see the truth and embrace this sovereign son. For he's the only way, truth, and life. It's faith in Christ alone. Amen.